on that Friday morning, mm-hmm. were you like, you know, it's going to be an intense day? Yeah. So we're staying in a hotel in downtown Minneapolis. And so we basically meet in the lobby of the hotel and then caravan out to this site. We parked a few blocks away. We put on uh, hard hat ball caps, you know, that have just a layer of protection. Beneath that, we bring some goggles just in case. Uh, Our photographer makes sure that he's bringing a light load so he can be mobile with his camera and we're not necessarily planted in one spot. We minimize the lights that we bring. We just want to make sure we're watching out for ourselves as much as trying to report what was going on around us. But you weren't feeling like, man, something's not good here. Or did You didn't have like this presentimiento or anything, or, or did you? Well, even on that Thursday, when we got there at 3 a.m., half the buildings that we saw were on fire and people were running through the streets. And I mean, these weren't just little flames. I mean, buildings, multiple story buildings were completely on fire. So when we got to the scene Friday morning, it was the same deal. This huge building, I think this was a six, maybe even seven story building, was completely engulfed in flames, flames shooting out every single opening you had in the building. A piece of the building had collapsed while we were on air. And it just collapsed. There you go. The the building just collapsed in the midsection. I think I already sort of could see how the the day was going to go. Were you thinking, and you know, I really have to make sure that we protect our crew and myself from the police. At that point, no. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, a conversation with CNN correspondent Omar Jimenez. You see them pulling up to this intersection here. Again, this is the first form of law enforcement we have seen this entire morning, uh, at least the last two hours. Most of the country was fast asleep on the morning of May 29th when Omar Jimenez was reporting live on television. I'm lost for words, really, at this point. It is like something out of a movie. Omar was covering the mass protests sparked by the murder of George Floyd. No justice, no peace! Protests intensifying overnight in Minneapolis. At around 5 a.m., Omar, who is Afro-Latino, went from being a reporter of the story to a subject himself, CNN reporter Omar Jimenez was arrested live on air Friday morning. We're for media? Yep, we're good. Yep. Hold on. I got you, I got you. Hold on. As people woke up and picked up their phones and computers, Omar's story would be viewed millions of times as it went viral. They, they had us here. They had us here. His unwarranted arrest became yet another example of a black man just trying to do his job and the racist comportment of the police. The police asked his white colleague what he was doing. He said, I work for CNN. He said, fine. And you see the difference in the result. I mean, the, the contrast is so stark. It almost feels like a caricature of reality, but it in fact is reality. I sat down with Omar to talk about that incident and what he was thinking while it all unfolded. But first, we talked about his path into journalism. And how, as a 26-year-old news correspondent, he still continues to think about his role, bringing the audience to his stories. Omar Jimenez, welcome to Latino USA. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
So you're like from where? You grow up where? You know, like what's the short story of Omar Jimenez's background? Yeah, the short story for me is I grew up in a suburb of Atlanta, uh, Kennesaw, Georgia. And my mom's side of the family is generations from Atlanta. My dad's side of the family is uh, from Colombia. He was born there in Cali. And then he came over when he was a kid. And then our family sort of grew here in the United States. And like I said, I went to Northwestern University for college where I played basketball, studied journalism. And then next thing I knew, I was out working local news and making my way to CNN. Do you remember the first black man you saw reporting? I don't remember the exact first person I ever saw, but I do remember one of the earliest people that had an impact on me about wanting to get in TV was watching Stuart Scott. Hi again, Sports Center, bringing it alongside Rich Eisen. I'm Stuart Scott. On Sports Center, may he rest in peace. But just watching him do Sports Center and talk the way he did, which was super, it was very casual. It wasn't like the, the, you know, the proper welcome to the evening news. <laughs> hey, tonight, come on. Right. Yeah, tonight, <laughs> new controversy. No, it, he was sort of like, boom, booyah, cooler than the other side of the pillow. Waiting. Booyah! Like things, little things that obviously were very natural for him, but all of a sudden, I think, drew me in. Whether I was conscious of the fact as a, as a seventh grader, I remember when I was watching him, of, wow, that's another black guy on TV and I could be that. I, I don't want to give myself that much intellectual credit at seventh grade. But I think there was something inherent in seeing someone who looked like me be themselves and to do it so well and to be liked by basically everybody. I was a little too nerdy at the time to maybe pull off the exact things that Stuart Scott was doing, but just get paid to talk about sports on TV <laughs> and I could be on TV and all my friends could watch me. That was the seventh grade mentality in me that I think was playing off that initial spark. You know, was, was there a part of you that was like, I also want to make my immigrant dad proud and being on television and talking sports, did that enter into it at all? So- Again, I don't want to give my seventh grader self too much intellectual credit, but later on when, you know, offers started to get serious about what I was going to do in college and what I was going to pursue after that, I mean, I come from a doctor family. My dad came to the U.S. He, he's a neurosurgeon. My uncles are all doctors too. And so, and my mom's side of the family, they're all doctors too. So there, there was a pressure coming from both sides of the family that I, you want to do what? You want to get into what? You know, <laughs> you know how difficult that is, right? Look at what the starting salary is. No, no, no. You need to go to school. You can become a doctor. And then from there, you can decide what you want to do. You could just become a neurosurgeon. Just yeah, become a neurosurgeon. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> just knock it out. Knock it out real quick. <laughs> they would always say, oh, no, do what makes you feel comfortable. But... And so I think that but motivated me to say, well, okay, if I am going to pursue this, I need and I owe it to my parents to, to succeed as much as I can, to push as hard as I can, and to really give it my all. Because if they really want me in one path, I need to show them why the path that I chose is the one that works for me. And even going to a Northwestern, Medill School of Journalism, the best in the country, that was one stepping stone that I said, look, hey, 
look where we are. Well, look where we're starting. They're like, oh, that's fine. Well, you can still take the MCAT while you're there. I'm like, okay, all right. Just, just give me, give me, give me some time. And uh, this, I started looking for local jobs. I got Baltimore, which is a an amazing market to start in coming out of college. I was, I'm still surprised to this day, but it was like, Hey, look, look, I'm starting, starting in Baltimore. And even then they said, well, what are the criteria to come back to grad school for medicine? So <laughs> they're, they're, you know, like, I'm like, they're like, on. you know, Johns Hopkins is in Baltimore. Could you do some I, night uh, classes uh, in neurosurgery? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was still getting sent things to study for the MCAT. And then it wasn't until I got the CNN job that I think they finally said, okay. start working in Baltimore. You did stories where you went with FBI agents to try to save um, young people who were being sex trafficked. Alongside local and state law enforcement, this is the FBI's Maryland Child Exploitation Task Force in action. You rode along with FBI agents into the dark web to follow the sale of fentanyl. What's now become a few clicks on a computer can mean drugs from anywhere in the world to a doorstep here in Maryland. You even did a segment where you actually got into a plane and flew with the Blue Angels. Don't pass out. <laughs> I like that. Breathe, squeeze, don't pass out. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, you don't suffer from nausea. So anyway, the, the point is, it seems like you're okay with inserting yourself into particular kind of action-packed situations. And for any of these stories, what role do you think that your identity played? Well, from a reporter standpoint, I, I like to be the window into these, into uncommon scenarios that we're familiar with on a surface level, but maybe don't quite see the intricacies of how it works. For example, you may see an arrest in a sex trafficking, from a sex trafficking task force on the FBI, but you don't know what goes into that. You may see the Blue Angel show as it flies over your city, but you don't know what goes into that. So I really do appreciate the fact of, of being a window and in some ways, as a reporter, you get an excuse to do some cool stuff, and that's that's part of it. But again, it's that window that that really um, that really plays into it. As, as far as a uh, my personal, what do I feel my personal identity plays into things? It's kind of hard to answer because for those stories in particular, they weren't ones that that identified with you know how I grew up personally. So you did do a lot of stories uh, with the police, like, for example, mm -hmm. the one with human trafficking um, yep. and kind of uncovering that. So what do you think that a journalist, but specifically your relationship to the police is? Police and reporters work together all the time. Make no mistake about it. Every day, police are in communication with the reporters, especially at the local level. And then at the national level, whenever there's an incident that happens, police are in communication with the reporters every day. There is a working relationship there. And so when I was doing those stories, it was kind of an involvement of that, an evolution of that. Now, what I recall, based on my experience in Minneapolis, was that when an incident happens, it's a lot of the times you default to that working relationship and they say, well, police say that a man came up the street on the 800 block of so, so, and so, but it's always police say, and it's the information that's being fed to you by police. Well, in Baltimore, I learned 
from just people in the community there that nah, the police accounts weren't always quite accurate or the police would give you an account and you talk to a witness and they're like, no, 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 that's not how it happened. This is how it happened. Everybody's running as police seem to be pulling in uh, with sirens. So on that Friday morning, take us to the moment when you're in the middle of that live shot. We had moved out of the way of police and we were standing basically to the side of the intersection that they sort of decided to form a perimeter around. And we start our live shot right after the top of the hour. What I want to make sure is not lost in this as we're seeing these remarkable and streets. Honestly, protesting. everything started out completely normally. Violence is taking place. There is some action behind you. Hang on. And there was one thing that happened over the course of that report. Yep. We've got one person uh, being arrested here. The report I was doing is now out the window. Let's talk about what's happening right here. We've got... We're yep, we're good. So as I'm talking and doing that, I feel a Minnesota State Patrol person come up behind me and they've got their arm on the back of my arm. They, they had us here. They had us here. We're speaking with State Patrol right now. Give us a second, guys. No reason to be suspicious in my head, even at this point. I just assumed as I kept talking that they're handling the situation with this woman and they want to make sure that we don't run in the way and get in the way. So I continue talking. We are live on the air at the moment. Put us put us back where you want us. We are getting out of your way. So just let us know. Wherever you'd want us, we will we will go. We are just getting out of your way when you're advancing through the intersection. So just let us know and we, and we got you. You can't even see me at that point, but this person already has their hand, uh, again, on my tricep. And I continue talking, continue talking, continue talking. And uh, this is a scene here playing out in Minneapolis. This is part of the advanced police presence that we saw come over the course of, of really minutes when the local police showed up. And then eventually that person's arrested. The camera swings back around. I keep going. And now you can see the person's now, I think uh, it's, it's, it's escalated a little from a hand resting to, I would say, a grab. And... The only words that were ever spoken from that point were, you're under arrest. I'm sorry? You're under arrest. Okay. Do you mind oh, telling me why I'm under arrest, sir? Why, why am I under arrest, sir? Even as we had been showing our credentials, even as we had our full camera crew there, even as we are live on TV, as my producer, photographer, and myself were telling them, they took the microphone out of my hands. I made sure to try and show the fact that I was cuffed to the camera. And they walked me away as, again, the, the city was burning in that particular area. And the live report, at least from my contribution, was over. If you're just tuning in, you are watching our correspondent, Omar Jimenez, being arrested by state police. In Minnesota, we're not sure why. I mean, it really is extraordinary, especially because he never once said why you were being placed under arrest. I never even got an explanation as I was being led away because I asked the officer that was that was leading me away and said, hey, look, we're going to be out here every single day. I got more teammates coming this afternoon. What did we do? Because I want to make sure that's communicated to other people that are coming in. And the guy said, look, man, I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm just following orders. 
Coming up on Latino USA, what happened in the aftermath of Omar being arrested and how he's processed the experience. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Whenever you face a choice, it helps to think like an economist. And this week on Planet Money Summer School, we'll start off our course in economics with a workout for your brain. How to decide what something truly costs. Listen now to Planet Money from NPR. We're back. When we left off, Omar Jimenez, a correspondent for CNN, was telling us about his experience being arrested by Minnesota State Patrol officers while covering the protests in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. We're going to continue that conversation now with Omar Jimenez. Were you afraid? I think in the immediacy of it, I wasn't, but there was a moment where I did feel especially uneasy. When I was on camera, there was a sense of comfort knowing that we're live on TV. People are watching me. I'm being as respectful as they can be. And anything that they do to me will be almost immediately accountable by people watching across the world for that particular broadcast. Where things did get a little uneasy was there was a delay between when the rest of my crew was arrested. So for a while... I thought I was the only person that was under arrest. I had been led completely away. I was now surrounded by a bunch of Minnesota State Police without my crew. And I truly was like, okay, what's happening now? I'm now off camera. Nobody can see what's about to may or may not happen to me. And so in my head, there was a brief moment of like, okay, uh, I think I snapped out of professional mode there. At that moment, did you also, when you were like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm alone here, was there also a realization that said, and I am a black man? In that moment, I wasn't even there yet. Now that I've had time to to reflect, of course, it adds an even even scarier context, an even more mind-boggling context of not just being a black man, but also being a microcosm of the story that I was already covering. At this point, you are part of this story. Yeah. And you have said that you were kind of all professional up until a certain point. And I'm wondering, when you say that you you got out of professional mode, it's like, is that the difference between professional mode is one thing, 
being a black man who is being cuffed by police with, you know, and again, due process being violated, et cetera, et cetera. That's something else. Well, and that was one of the major lessons I think I took away from from this whole experience was that I think I had been viewing it as, as two separate things. And this was the first story, even before that arrest, this was the first story where the human side of me and the work side of me seemed to be bridged or get closer to being bridged. And then the arrest happened and then it was unavoidable. And I think the biggest shift that I now had was that I had been trying to keep these two worlds separate, that, oh, I step into this story and I tell what's going on and I use maybe my experiences to help guide me, but then I step back out and I go home or I leave the story and boom, that's it. This story, there was no stepping in. One, I was being pulled in. And then once I was in, there was no escaping it because this was the reality of my experience, whether I was a reporter or not. Your mom comes from many generations uh, of Atlanta, African-American family. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yep, correct. I hear your mom was not happy when she saw your her son, who she loves and adores, being arrested live on television. So the night before, my mom had texted me saying, hey, I haven't really seen you on this much, even though I'd been on a lot, but she had just had a really busy week. So she said, when's the next time you'll be on? I said, oh, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. And she's like, okay, I'll wake up. So she woke up early and was watching it live, sitting in bed as the whole situation unfolded right before her eyes. So if she wasn't awake before, she was definitely awake then. She was on the phone, maybe 40 seconds into me being in cuffs, calling everybody that she could. Throughout all of this, she's in tears, just trying to process the personal side of things, but then also that motherly instinct of trying to do something. She went through a lot that morning. She was the first one to sort of contextualize things a little more for me and a little seriously. In her head, she didn't want to be another mother who had had a black son die in police custody. Another mother who had a son transported by police and then somehow end up in the hospital. So, Omar, your story has clearly struck a nerve. Um, Your video of you getting arrested has 9 million views. Um, But, you know, there's an article in The New Yorker that suggests that your story got so much attention, partially because it's centered on you. You know, a good-looking graduate from Northwestern who works at an elite media institution like CNN. And there's this notion of, you know, respectability politics. It's complicated, right? But I'm wondering whether or not you've thought about if it has played a role in your life as a journalist. Well, it's a reality of of growing up as a Black man, Afro-Latino, all of that. because. It's what you're taught in those households. With my, when I got my driver's license, I explicitly remember the talk. Here's how you interact with police when you're pulled over. Here's what you do. You always are polite. That's not a conversation that's happening in white households. It's, it's, it's just not. 
And so that is beat so much into you over the years that it's now a part of who I am. And a part of that too is in some ways, you're so thankful to be where you are because there may not be as much to fall back onto that you are always going to be the submissive one. You are always going to defer off to someone else. You're always going to, oh, you're right, you're right. Let's do it this way. Because these are habits that have been beat into our community for for decades. And so as far as having that being pointed out, I don't take offense to that. I say, yeah, I'm glad you're pointing that out. Everything that happened in that moment wasn't an on-the-fly thing. It came from years of unconsciously picking up different things from here and there, here and there. Tell me where you want to stand. Oh, well, you don't want us to stand here? Okay, well, we'll go over here. Here's my press credential. I'm trying to polite my way out of an interaction that seemed to be predetermined. It did come from years of that mentality when it comes to interactions with police. Make it out of the situation alive. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much for joining me on Latino USA. Of course. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by Antonia Cerejido and edited by Sofia Palizaca. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Luis Treyes, Janice Yamoka, Julieta Martinelli, Ginny Montalvo, Alisa Escarcen, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelhutz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our interns are Sofia Sanchez and Marie Mendoza. Our theme music was composed by Zeña Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, you can find us on all of your social media. Remember, stay safe. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the New York Women's Foundation, funding women leaders that build solutions in their communities and celebrating 30 years of radical generosity. Carnegie Corporation, promoting the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding. And the Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. Dark on Netflix is <laughs> unbelievable. Nah, too scary, man. Nah. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and next time on Latino USA, we bring you a portrait of Latina goth icon and tattoo artist Kat Von D. That's next time on Latino USA.